Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Bibles, please, to the book of John, the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We have paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. You can grab one of those and find the passage on page 529. We'll be looking at John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Last week, um, we dealt with uh, kind of a, a difficulty that many Christians face, which is the, the challenge of unanswered prayer. Uh, this week, we're going to deal with another difficulty, and it's the difficulty of dealing with our doubts. Um, our doubts. I think if all of us here are honest, even as committed Christians for many, many years, we have to all confess that we struggle with various doubts. They come in a variety of different forms. Some of us have intellectual doubts. Um, David referenced this just a little while ago. Here we are in the Advent season, looking forward to Christmas. At the center of Christmas is this thing called the virgin birth, that a woman who didn't have relations with a man had a baby. (laughs) Some people have doubts about that. And maybe you do too. There's a number of intellectual doubts people bring to the faith. Um, some of us struggle with maybe cultural doubts. That is, we find the things that we believe as Christians out of line with what our culture believes. So as we say Jesus is the only way or that homosexuality is, is morally wrong, if we make these kinds of claims, they're out of step with the culture. And we find ourselves maybe not liking that tension, and so we begin to doubt. Maybe we're not right, and our heart gets filled with doubt. There's also personal doubts. Many of us have had a variety of difficulties in our lives. A trouble has come our way, or there are things that we have longed for that have not been given to us, and we begin to question whether God is good and whether God loves us. We get filled with doubt. So doubt comes from a variety of forms, and in this passage here this morning in John chapter 20, we're going to look at somebody who is struggling with doubt. And in this case, it's a man named Thomas, and he is struggling with the claim of a resurrected Savior here in John chapter 20. So we are here in John because we are continuing through our sermon series called Route 66. We are looking at every single book of the Bible, one sermon per Bible book, and we are about through with the four Gospels. We are in the book of John today. We saw the birth of Jesus in Matthew, something about the life of Jesus in Mark. We looked at uh, the crucifixion of Jesus last week in Luke. And now we're going to think a little bit about the resurrection and Thomas's response to it. So, general information about the book of John. We believe it is written by John. That's not John the Baptist, as we learned last week with the children. A different John. John who was a disciple of Jesus among the the inner circle of three close friends with Jesus, John, the one also who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation, which we'll get to eventually, God willing. Um, This book written a little later than other Gospels and even other books in the New Testament, between 70 and 100 A.D. It's common consensus among scholars. Um, Events in the book of John, it begins with uh, this concept of the Logos or the Word who became flesh, unique to the book of John. There's a lot in John that's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
John's kind of set apart in a lot of ways, and this is one of them. John 3.16, of course, the passage that all of us know, one of the most popular uh, passages in all the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We also have the I am sayings, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life. Throughout the book of John, the resurrection of Lazarus, the high priestly prayer in John 17, and of course the crucifixion and resurrection, which are in all four Gospels. Themes in John, a lot about the Trinity, the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, love among Christians to one another, and God's love for us and our love for him, uh, Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life. So a lot of different things, but those are some of the primary ones that come out in John a little more than the other Gospels. But today we're in John 20, 24 to 31 is what I'm going to read. And it's this account of what has come to be known over the years as the story of Doubting Thomas. Thomas, filled with doubts. And we're going to take a look at this encounter. So, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. John 20, starting with verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Lord, we do ask for your Holy Spirit to come and open our eyes and soften our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, let's take a look at this. Doubting Thomas. I'm going to begin with my first point here by saying something that might come to you as a bit of a surprise, but I do think it's able to be backed up by Scripture, and that is this, that there are actually some good reasons to doubt. Now, I don't mean that to encourage you to doubt. What I mean is that the Bible presents to us occasions when it seems that doubt expressed by his people is acceptable to some degree. So we have this guy named Thomas, verse 24. He's one of the 12, one of the disciples. And verse 24 says that he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So that's referring to in uh, earlier occasion, after the resurrection, so Jesus has gone to the cross, he's laid down his life, he died there, and three days later he was risen from the tomb, and he appears to various people, including the disciples, but on this occasion that he appealed to the disciples, Thomas was not there with them. And so the disciples, they, they go and find Thomas. I mean, these are people who have been very close for a long time, they're good friends, and 
they go to Thomas and they say in verse 25, we have seen the Lord. Now, now be very clear here what they're saying. I mean, Thomas would know, of course we've seen the Lord. We, we were with him for three years, but that's not what they meant. <laughs> I mean, we have seen the Lord since he has died. <laughs> After he was died and put in the tomb, we, we saw him alive. And so here's Thomas. He has not seen the resurrected Jesus yet. And his response is a response that's very similar, similar to probably how every one of us in this room would react. We just say, what? What are you talking about? Say that again? He, he's dead. I saw him in the tomb. What do you mean? He's alive. Thomas responds with a measure of skepticism, a measure of doubt. And he articulates it very clearly here in verse 25. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand to his side, I'm, I'll never believe. I'm not inclined to believe this. This sounds crazy to me. These kinds of things don't happen in our world. When people die, they stay dead. That's the way it works. You're saying he's risen? I don't know about that. Thomas responds in doubt. And so this is a good question here that I think for us to wrestle with, and maybe in the life groups you can talk about this. Is Thomas wrong to respond this way? Is he wrong? Now, as we look throughout the rest of Scripture, we do see examples of people expressing doubt in a way that seems to be acceptable. For instance, the Psalms. You see the psalmist constantly offering up their doubts to God. Psalm 73, I think that I've kept my heart clean in vain, the psalmist says. Like, I'm kind of wondering if this whole Christian thing is a sham and I've been wasting my time following God. That's what the psalmist says. That's doubt. Remember John the Baptist after he was put in prison. He said to his followers, go ask Jesus if he's really the one because I'm not so sure anymore. You remember John was the guy who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He pointed to Jesus and said that when he was in prison under very adverse circumstances. He started to doubt. Or how about the father in Mark chapter 9? Remember he brings his son, the demon-possessed son, to be healed and Jesus promises that he's going to do this and the father exclaims, I believe, help my unbelief, right? Help my doubt. I'm doubting. Jesus doesn't rebuke that. It's just this man being honest. He said, look, I, I struggle with doubt. And Thomas has got his doubts. And you probably have your doubts. One encouraging thing about the doubt that I'm presenting to you here is that it seems that, that these forms of doubt almost presuppose some kind of faith. There's a Puritan named William Gurnall who said that doubt is kind of like the annoying smoke that refers to a fire of faith underneath. The smoke shows that there was fire. The smoke of doubt indicates that there's something going on underneath. And in all the cases that I mentioned, I think that's the case. And I think that's the case with Thomas as well. So Thomas, I think it's kind of a bad rap. You know, he's gone down in history as Doubting Thomas. Maybe you've heard this said to you or you've said it to others. Don't be a Doubting Thomas. But I'm going to suggest that Thomas had good reasons to express his doubts. Here's what Thomas wanted to know. When he heard that the disciples, his friends, saw Jesus alive, what Thomas wanted to know was, is, is this 
the resurrection that Jesus was talking about? He's saying, disciples, are you saying that you saw a risen man from the grave like in his body? Are you saying that there was a guy there that I could touch? Is that what you're talking about? Because if you're talking about like a ghost, well, I'm not really that interested. Or if you're saying Jesus rose from the dead in your hearts, because that's something that you kind of want to believe, not interested. If you, if, if you hallucinated this somehow and you had too much to drink maybe the night before, not really interested in that either. What Thomas is saying is very clearly, I want to touch him. I want to know that from the grave came not just the spirit of Jesus, but his body too. I want to see a bodily resurrected Jesus. Because as Paul said a little bit later, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. It's a sham. It's a waste of time. Thomas knew this. A guy named Michael Williams um, says it like this. Thomas didn't miss the point, perhaps more emphatically than anyone else. He got it. Your faith and mine rest on a resurrected Jesus who can be touched. Thomas wanted to know that sin has been overcome, that death has been defeated. He wanted to know that when Jesus said that he would die and rise again, that that's actually what happened. And so he demanded to touch his Savior. Well, what happens? Jesus goes to Thomas, and he meets him in his doubt, doesn't he? Verse 27. Um, Well, first of all, in verse 26, he comes in somehow, miraculously, even though the doors are locked, he's in his physical resurrected body, he comes in, peace be with you, and then he goes right to Thomas in verse 27. Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. And uh, Thomas does this, and then in verse 28, we get this, this wonderful response. As soon as Thomas gets the answer that he wants, my Lord and my God. What a great profession of faith. I mean, this is the most persuasive, the most passionate, really the most fully orthodox profession of faith that we have seen so far in the Gospels. My Lord and my God. My, it's a personal thing for Thomas. Lord, the one who's in charge of all things. God, the God-man who has come. The Word became flesh. All packed into this tight little statement. My Lord and my God. It's like, here's Thomas, the skeptic coming to believe. And you know, sometimes when skeptics come to believe, they really believe. (laughs) They go the whole way because they've been thinking about things. They've been wrestling with their doubts. They've been examining all of these questions. And when those come answered, they end up very often giving themselves to Jesus in an unusually persuasive way. C.S. Lewis, a good example of that, lived his life as an atheist for so many years. And then when he became a Christian, God ended up using him as one of the most able and persuasive defenders of the faith in the last couple of centuries. So, maybe you're here today with with your doubts, and and maybe you feel guilty about your doubts and your questions, and and you wonder if you're a bad Christian because you have doubts. Maybe you think that because I have doubts, I don't even have any faith. And the answer to all that is no. It doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It doesn't mean you don't have faith. What we want to do here at the church is help you in answering these questions. Maybe you're looking and you see some things in the Bible that don't really quite add up. You see what you perceive to be contradictions in the Bible. This bugs you. Maybe you 
have noticed corruption in the church, and it's just made you cynical about the church. Or maybe you've met an atheist who seems to be living a life of integrity and happiness, and you think to yourself, if that person could do it without God, why do I need God? You you have these doubts. I want to encourage you to bring them up, but let's talk about them. But that's what we're here for. That's what Pastor Brian and I are here for. That's what the elders at this church are are here for. I, I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again. We want this to be, at this church, a safe place for people to offer up their questions. Uh, send us an email. Let's talk by email. Let's go to lunch. Let's, let's go have coffee. Let's, let's talk about these things. Don't hide it away. There's no shame. We're not going to humiliate you or chastise you or admonish you for bringing forth your doubts. We want to help. So there is a sense in which there are good reasons for doubt, and I think that Thomas is expressing this, but we, we need to move on and acknowledge that there are also bad reasons for doubt. There are also bad reasons. So Thomas wants this evidence, and that's a totally legitimate request. But after Jesus answers Thomas's request by showing himself to Thomas, then notice what Jesus says in verse 27. It's very clear. Jesus doesn't condemn or admonish Thomas for asking the question. But in verse 27, after Jesus shows himself to Thomas, at the very end, he says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. The NIV says, stop doubting. But that's what Jesus is saying. It's okay that you were doubting, Thomas, but now there's a time to move on and leave your doubts behind. Put your doubts aside and believe. Stop doubting. And believe. That, that's a command. That doesn't mean it's easy, but the command is that we are, we are commanded to believe, to come to God with a disposition of belief. That can be kind of hard because skepticism is kind of admired, I think, in, in our culture in a lot of ways. You know, the skeptic sometimes is looked at as the person who's not gullible, uh, the person who's an independent thinker, Uh, This is the person who's going to not fall for all of these things that the masses believe. And there's a certain badge of honor sometimes that skeptics wear. Uh, We see it in in various ways, and I think these are maybe some bad reasons for doubt. Uh, We see it sometimes in the academy, that, that is in the world of philosophical thought among brilliant scholars who have adopted a kind of radical skepticism about the world. We see it in postmodernism now. It started with thinkers like David Hume, Immanuel Kant, who basically came to a conclusion after kind of thinking themselves into a hole that they can't even know if the outside world even exists. And there are some who operate this way. It's like, how can we really know? They're living in a state of perpetual doubt and skepticism. They doubt everything. They won't believe anything. A problem with that, it seems to me, is that the the radical skeptic, the person who wants to doubt everything, seems to doubt everything except one thing, and that is his doubts, his skepticism. 
The radical skeptic is skeptical of everything except the worldview of skepticism. That somehow gets a pass. I mean, I would think if you want to doubt everything, you ought to doubt whether it's wise to be so doubtful about everything. <laughs> Why don't you doubt that? Why aren't you skeptical of your skepticism? If you're skeptical of your skepticism, of course, that's going to lead to belief. And in the heart of a sinful person, that's not what they want. So they adopt a radical skepticism. C.S. Lewis also uses this example. He says it's like if you go into an office and there's a guy there in the office and he says, don't trust anybody in this office. And, of course, what's hidden underneath that statement is, don't trust anybody but me. Believe that I'm telling the truth. I'm the exception. Don't trust anybody else. But you've got to believe me. In other words, even the most radical skeptic trusts somebody. Everybody has an authority. Everybody has someone or something to which it looks. And, it, and, you, and you trust that thing to help you make sense of reality in the world. What is that in your life? What, what is it that you look to as the ultimate authority? It's there in your heart somewhere. There's no such thing as 100% radical skepticism. But sometimes also, so that's kind of a, an example of a, a bad reason for doubt, I think. Just, I'm going to doubt everything. But in the church, too, I think there's a bad reason for doubt. And this has kind of arisen lately. And, and it kind of goes like this. I think the thinking kind of goes like this. It's like, I want to reach unbelievers. I, I want to win a hearing with the world. And I don't want to come across as somebody who, who's a know-it-all. And so what I'm going to do is reach out to people and kind of appear to be uncertain and confused about what I believe so that they don't think that I think I have more answers than they do. You know, I mean, there's something good in this. There's, there's something wise in approaching people with humility, of course. And, of course, we don't know everything. But, but it goes a little too far when we start to think that you know, I don't want to pretend that I know anything more than anybody else. I'm going to be just as confused as everybody else. I'm going to backpedal on everything that I thought that I knew. I'm going to make excuses for everything the Bible teaches. And then people will want to listen. I, don't, I just don't think so. A guy named Trevin Wax writes it this way. He says, there is nothing attractive about inviting people to become part of a community that doesn't know what it believes. Gracious confidence, that's a key word there, gracious, humble confidence in the power of the gospel will go much further than apologizing for what seems difficult in our Savior's teaching. We don't have all the answers, but we do have some answers. We have important answers. We are not just as confused as the world is. We're not. God has revealed things to us so that we would be an ambassador for him and to Proclaim those things to the world, and we need not apologize for those things. Fact is, the Bible very often presents doubt as an obstacle. You remember when Peter's walking on water, and then he begins to sink, and Jesus reaches out his hand, and he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What's your problem? Your doubt, Peter. Or how about at the end of... Matthew <clears throat> talks about Jesus being resurrected. People gather around him to worship him, but it, but it said this little phrase, but some doubted. I mean, this, this is not doubt presented in a positive way. The fact is, the scriptures proclaim to us that you can know truth, and you can be confident about it. 
and maybe even certain about it, at least that's what Luke seemed to think. In Luke chapter 1, he's writing to Theophilus. This is how the gospel begins. He says, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That is the things about Jesus and what he did, what he taught, his death and his resurrection. Luke says, I want you to be certain about these things. I don't want you to wallow in doubt and uncertainty. Same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says this, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. I know him. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I'm convinced of it. I'm not filled with doubt. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth is there for us to know. We can know it by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't know everything. We don't know it. There's a lot of things we don't know, and so don't misunderstand me. We need to be humble about that. We don't know why some people suffer and others don't. We look at Genesis chapter 4. We don't know where Cain got his wife. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we, we don't know when Jesus is coming again. And there's a hundred other things we don't know, but man, there sure is a lot that we do know. So let's not present ourselves as, as confused about what Scripture has revealed to us. I think it's a little bit like pursuing holiness. You know, all of us as Christians are pursuing holiness, but we know we're never going to be perfectly holy in this life. We pursue it, but we're never going to reach that final stage. I think it's the same thing with confidence and certainty. We're never going to be absolutely certain. We're never going to get rid of all of our doubts, but we ought to be pursuing that. Our Christian lives ought to be on an upward trajectory toward greater confidence in the things that we've been taught in Scripture. So how, how do we do that? How do we fight against bad doubt? And the first thing I'll say to you is something I say over and over again, and I'm sorry it's not more uh, unique, but it's just simply this. It's pray. And read your Bible. Pray and read your Bible. If you're filled with a lot of doubts right now, and you find yourself overcome by skepticism, I would ask you, how's your prayer life, and how much are you in the Word of God? And I'm, I, I'm almost sure that one of those things is flagging in your life, if you're being overcome with doubt and skepticism. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. That's what the Scripture says. Um, another thing to do is, is to be involved in Christian community. Go to life group. Hang out with other Christians. Listen to them. Talk to them. Tell your doubts to them. We tend to believe like the people we hang out with. It's a good way to fight doubt. We've got a lot of education programs here. We have Bible studies. We have discipleship hour classes here on, on Sunday morning. Pastor Brian teaches a class every week. will go a long way in helping you deal with your questions about the, the scriptures. Take advantage of this. There are so many books to read, so many books to help you, at least with your intellectual doubts. Tim Keller's Making Sense of God, fantastic book. Reason for God is good, too. I think Making Sense of God is better. Uh, Mere Christianity, classic. Defense of the Christian faith, C.S. Lewis. Paul Copan is God a moral monster dealing with questions about the morality of the Christian God, which is really the primary question that people are asking today. Not whether he exists, but whether he's good. Is God a moral monster? <clears throat> Tactics by Greg Kokel about how to defend your faith. Read these books. Buy them. 
listen to podcasts. Great way. There's many apologetic podcasts. Undeception, This Cultural Moment, Unbelievable, The Briefing, On Your Way to Work, Fixing Breakfast in the Morning, put on a podcast, listen to these things, and God will use these to fortify your faith, to help you obey what Jesus has said, to stop doubting and believe. So the last thing here is this. There are some good reasons for doubt. There there are some bad reasons for doubt, but there's really a great reason to believe. In the end, there's a great reason to believe. Now, now you might be saying, and I said the same thing as I was reading this passage this week, um, that Thomas got a pretty good deal here in one sense because he was able to behold the risen Christ right before him. He was able to actually touch Jesus. And so you might say to yourself, you know, if I could do that, I wouldn't have doubts either. I mean, it'd be really easy to believe if I could just reach out and touch Jesus. Um, I wouldn't count on that. (laughs) A lot of people saw Jesus during his earthly ministry and didn't believe. Matthew 28, I just quoted, it's at the very end of the book. The resurrected Jesus, a lot of them came to worship him. Some doubted. Resurrected Savior wasn't enough. Ah, I still got my questions. Still doubting. It says in John chapter 7, verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. <laughs> These brothers have been living with him 24-7 for years. They don't believe him. Not necessarily, friends. And I wonder what Jesus would say, and we have the answer to, to that question. What would Jesus say if you said, oh, I, I, you know, if I could just touch him, then I would really believe? Verse 29, <clears throat> Jesus says to Thomas, Have you believed, Thomas, because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So who's, who's that talking about? That's you. That's me. We're the ones called to believe without seeing. And what Jesus is saying is, blessed are you. There is a blessing for you who believe without being able to lay your hands on the risen Savior. There's a special blessing for everybody over the centuries who have put their faith in this Savior. Based on what? Is it just blind faith? No, because Jesus goes on. Verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. And what happened? They got written in a book. But these are written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what Jesus is saying is, no, you can't touch Jesus with your hands, but you can read about him in Scripture. And what he seems to be saying is, that's better. (laughs) That's better. Because we learn so much about Jesus from the scriptures. We learn all of the implications of everything that he has done for us. We learn about all that God has promised throughout history in the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled in a manifold of different ways in the New Testament. We learn that God is the creator of all things, that that you and I are his creatures, that we're held accountable to him, that we fall woefully short of his holy law. We fall short of his glory, that we are rightful recipients of his wrath and condemnation, but that God in his mercy sent his son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, God himself, came into our world at Christmas. 
in the form of a man. And this man lived a life on this earth, obedient to the Father in all things, in his heart and in his words and in his actions. And he goes to a cross and he dies there. On the cross, so much was accomplished. The wrath of God turned away. Our sins, your sins, atoned for and covered so that his righteousness could be received by you through faith and that you could then have the confidence and promise of eternal life. Death doesn't have the last word for you. You're going to rise up yourself one day, Christian, out of the grave and live forever and ever on a new earth, purged of all sadness, sin, and evil. Those are things. You've got to have the Bible to know those things. You lay your hands on Jesus. That's a great thing. I'm not denying that I wouldn't want that, but... That doesn't tell you all these other things that the scriptures tell us. And so what Jesus is saying is, blessed are you who believe based on what has been written in scripture. And you know what? The day is coming, friends, when you will be able to reach out and touch him. Because when he comes again, he's going to gather his people to himself, and we're going to gather around his throne, and we're going to worship him and love him and love one another be close to him and and touch him and all of our doubt will be removed, all of our skepticism will be put aside. But until then, enjoy and immerse yourself in the full revelation of the scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. And stop doubting and look to Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. Amen.